You are listening to Sing Amen, Ministering Through Music. I am Jennifer Kerr-Budziak, and welcome to our podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome to our first full-length Sing Amen podcast. We hope to be releasing a couple of these each month in a combination of music and interviews and various topics of interest to all kinds of church musicians. One of the best things about my job is that I have this ironclad excuse whenever one of my musical heroes walks into GIA, which actually kind of happens a lot, I get to sit down with them for half an hour or so for this podcast and just talk to them and ask them questions and pick their brains about all the things I've ever wondered. So when Father Mike Jonkis came to Chicago for a couple days this past spring to do some work on his new collection, it's a deep and lasting piece. I made sure that I could get a little time to sit down and talk with him. And he was just wonderfully thoughtful and open about his inner life as a composer and some of the nuts and bolts practical things that composers have to think of. Uh, It was just a great conversation. As an aside, by the way, if you are not already a subscriber to the Open Your Hymnal podcast, where Matt Reichert and Zach Stahowski talk in each episode with a different composer about the background behind a different beloved song... I would suggest just put this one on pause right now, go over and subscribe to theirs, and then come back. In their very first episode, they spoke with Father Mike about what led to uh, the writing of On Eagle's Wings, and you don't want to miss that. Anyway, this was one of the most wonderful conversations I've ever been privileged to take part in. Michael Jonkis is just this wonderfully humble, gentle soul, and I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. So here we go. Thank you very, very much for having this conversation. My and pleasure. I was hoping again that we could just talk about, you know, what it is to be a composer, how you approach it, how you got into this, um, to give people and me a yeah. sense of just kind of what goes on inside you as, you know, a minister, as an artist. Right. Um, sometimes we tend to prioritize one over the other and think they can't be the same yeah. and just talk about that. So. Wow, that is gigantic. I think the first thing I want to say is I hope to become a composer. At my stage of life, I look at uh, Bach, and I look at Beethoven, and I look at uh, Bartok, uh, and I think to myself, why do I even write when you have these you know, magnificent creative souls? So um, I think of myself as a church musician who is like a medieval craftsperson. Uh, I, I, my ego is not heavily involved in this. I don't see myself as a, you know, the romantic composer walking in the woods and suddenly struck by, you know, inspiration. I'm a craftsperson, and my crafting is trying to help uh, communities sing their faith. So, so that's the first thing on composer. Uh, and that kind of a church composer actually has to have training in lots of areas. So second part of your question was uh, background. And this is uh, simple. I won't go on long stories about it. But I first started writing for the church in high school because I had fortunately had uh, three great sources of music. Uh, at home, my mom was a lyric soprano pretty much gave up her career to raise us eight kids. Uh, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And that meant that um, we heard her sing, 
and had a kind of light classical repertoire, which was just wonderful to, to hear. Uh, my dad was in technical theater, so that meant that I could, uh, oh, easy. Uh, when the Met Opera used to come to the Twin Cities, he would be a stagehand. So I could go with him and then either find a, a seat that no one had taken or more frequently to stand in the wings and see from behind the scenes how the opera was working. But hearing this glorious music, of course. Uh, so, so both my mom and dad were really influential in, in, in developing. Uh, a second stream would be my own home parish. And there we learned chant. This was prior to the Second Vatican Council. So uh, I learned Gregorian chant and how to pronounce it. Not always how to understand it, but how to pronounce it and, and sing it. As well as, because it was a fairly progressive parish, Jeannino. So we were singing Jeannino psalms in the late 50s, uh, which was pretty amazing. Uh, and then the third great source was uh, the folk revival happening in, in the United States. I'm a child of the 60s, so all of the names that you'd associate with that period, Peter, Paul, and Mary, you know, Judy Collins, etc., they were all influential. And by high school then, I could bring them all together and try to, to serve the church with a new repertoire. At this point in our conversation, Father Mike and I talked a bit about his past and his growing up years and his time in the high school seminary. And he talked a little about what it was like to be a student during the Second Vatican Council. It's a convergence of, of interesting things. Uh, Second Vatican Council had happened while I was you know, in school. And that meant that my priest professors would use the documents of Vatican II both to teach us Latin because we'd have to read, you know, the text and, and then try to, but also uh, as a way of shaping and forming us for ministry in the future. So I, you know, bless the people that taught me back then. They brought it all together. And what was obvious was the music that was written for the pre-Vatican II liturgy, glorious, beautiful, uh, but not really responding to the needs of the post-Vatican Council. And the easiest thing to point to was uh, the singing of the congregation. Um, we didn't try, except in some very progressive parishes, to have the congregation sing Gregorian chant. But now we were asking people to sing in the vernacular, uh, so we had to produce a new repertoire. Can I ask, you know, you, you grew up as a musician, and I, I love the interaction, you know, the idea that, you know, you could stand in the wings at the Met. So you were steeped from the beginning, not just in the beautiful music, but the way the music moves in a space, yes. which is so much about what we do as church music sessions. That's, that's amazing. Um, but so you, so you grew up with this musical training and you also um, have been a priest oh, yeah. for a very long time. Has Have you ever had the opportunity as a priest to spend much time in liturgy just as a musician or or during your training? Were you able to just kind of be a music minister? Yeah. or And how do those two vocations work together in you? Also a great question. Uh, I am uh, what's called a lifer. And that meant, means there are very few of us left. I left for seminary in ninth grade. So I start seminary ninth grade, go all the way through high school, then go through college at the University of St. Thomas. 
But at the conclusion of college, I was absolutely sure that I was not called to the priesthood. Um, very clear. So I got a job and worked for three years in a northwestern suburb of Minneapolis called New Hope. I loved that even the, the name of the city was wonderful, yeah. Um, so I worked there for three years as a parish liturgy and music uh, director. I'm amazed that the pastor hired someone so young and so green. Um, but so I have that wonderful experience. Then at, by the conclusion of those three years, uh, the people in the parish basically said, we trust the way you think, we trust the way you pray, go back. We think you're really called to this. So I went back, and then from that point on, I was in major seminary and, you know, as a priest. So I've never been, other than those three, three years, I've never been a professional uh, church musician. Do you have many times when you can you know, step off the altar, as it were, and be a musician. I mean, I know that, you know, there's yeah. these wonderful times, you know, when, you, you know, when there are concerts and, yeah. and things, well, but do you get to yeah. do that? No, not so much. Not so much? Yeah. I, would, I would think it would be, yeah. it would be a but, hard thing. But I, 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 I've been very, very lucky. Um, I know some other uh, priest composers and priests, priest uh, musicians who frequently have an incredibly difficult life because the artist in them seems to be battling the priest in them. And they frequently are in a fair amount of pain because they can't express themselves the way they would hope to as an artist, uh, while at the same time the, the, the ministry is just not fulfilling in the same way. But as I say, I've been really lucky. Uh, for me, uh, being a priest is the core of my identity and the music supports it, it helps it. Uh, but I've never felt a great tension between the two. And frankly, if I, I've said this before, if I never write another piece, I won't feel terrible about it. I just assume that God's leading me to something else. And there may be listeners out there saying, <laughs> if he doesn't write another piece, that is God's blessing to us all. <laughs> so, I doubt it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, so when, you, when you're approaching the process of getting ready to compose something, first of all, what, you know, aside from, you know, I have a commission, I have this piece of music that's due at so-and-so by this date, what makes you choose to compose a particular piece and how do you go about it? Yeah. Uh, well, you've mentioned commissions, and in fact, that does happen fairly frequently for me, so I, I try to do that. Then I've got a long uh, conversational list uh, so that the person that's commissioning or, or group that's commissioning understands how it works. Second, I, I set uh, particular, what would the right word be, projects for myself, and these are usually long-term so, for example, I have a project uh, where I'm writing a responsorial psalm for every Sunday in solemnity of the three-year cycle. Um, and that's, you know, I've been doing that for some years now, and I plan that it'll take more years. Uh, I'm also in a project that I set for myself of writing hymn texts. Uh, sometimes hymn tunes along with the text, but frequently hymn texts that can be sung to previously existing tunes. And likewise, for every Sunday and solemnity of the three-year cycle, 
and what makes these texts in some ways unique. They're like the Lutheran understanding of the hymn of the day, where you take the scriptures that the lectionary gives you very seriously and then try to craft a, a text that will really um, open up those scriptures for congregational use. So that's a second one. And then <laughs> sometimes something just hits me and uh, um, I'll, I'll be inspired. I've noticed, do you, I, I wish I had a count, do you know how many times you have set, for example, the Magnificat? Uh, because I keep seeing, question. it's like, oh, Michael Schenker's, wait, this isn't the same. And they all, they're the, they're the same text or very close, but they're different. They all say something <laughs> yes, a yes. little different. Yeah. I think I've set the Magnificat around eight times, and uh, it's inexhaustible. The text is so uh, magnificent. Uh, one thing that does change is that the text writers, so, so for example, uh, the, the new collection that I'll be working on with GIA, there's a setting of the Magnificat that I translated, my soul proclaims uh, my soul gives glory to the Holy One, for example. And that's a new way of engaging the text. Uh, but I've set, um, I think, uh, James Quinn's version of the Magnificat, a uh, 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 German named Mueller, and his translation, I think, uh, Mary Louise Bringle. So multiple. Uh, and each of the translations has a little different nuance and gives me a new way to engage this, this text. Uh, frankly, I've done the same with uh, Psalm 63. I think I've set that maybe seven or eight times, because then there's always something new in it. My favorite is still that, the original of the, uh, As Morning Breaks. Oh, Morning Breaks, sure. Love that, I love <laughs> that, I like one of my myself. favorites. Yeah. Um, so you've, you know, you talk about the different projects you set for yourself, which is kind of interesting. And I wonder if this sort of gets it, um, you know, the next question I had, which was, I mean, you pretty much write everything. I mean, you write hymns, you write psalms, you write refrain verse kinds of songs, you write, you know, contemporary style, you write acapella choral. And it seems, it, first of all, it seems like in recent years that choral piece is is coming out in a way that is, you know, New. It's it's new yeah. and it's really exciting. Can you talk a little about the change and the shift in the way you approach things, mm -hmm. and maybe uh, why some of that is coming out? Or well, I can I can say straightforwardly, I don't know why. I mean, for me, uh, the the process is is kind of mysterious. Uh, I tend to think it's just because I'm getting older, and I know the craft a little better. Um, I. <laughs> When I look back on the compositions, there are compositions from the late 70s that I would suppress if I could. You know, it, this has been like growing up in public. Uh, and you now there are some lovely things way back when as well, but I didn't have the tools that you can develop as a composer. Uh, and I was, was quite limited back then. Now the tools are broader. Um, but the responsibility is also heavier. I've got a deeper sense of this is not just uh, entertainment music or uh, uh, music to, to bridge over a boring part of the ritual. Um, this is prayer, and it's the community's prayer, not just mine. So <laughs> I'd better use all of the tools I can get to do that well.
kind of before we started, you know, we yeah. were talking about, you know, that whole question of, you know, like how do you approach and you had, you know, the, mm -hmm. the three steps. You want to go there a little sure, bit? Sure, sure. And this is partially with me reflecting on what I do, but I'm a professor. Uh, so every once in a while I get to teach and sometimes even teach uh, church musicians at, at uh, college level. So what I try to, to convince them of is that there have to be three areas in which they know, they show competence, uh, and they then know how to bring all three of them together. Namely, uh, I think they have to know texts and understand texts well. Um, multiple languages. They should know Latin and Greek if they're working in the Roman Rite. And if they really want to be of service to the way the church in the United States is developing, they've got to know Spanish. Um, I confess, I know Italian, but not Spanish. And when I make my forays into Spanish writing, I always have to have a friend that will, will help me with that. So, so anyway, the first thing is to really dive into the text, to know that it's biblical foundations, to know all of that. Second is, how is it going to be used? Um, many composers, I think, primarily uh, operate out of self-expression, that they want to share with a wider world what's been going on in their interior life. I don't. It's not that I don't share that, I don't make a block about it, but that's not the focus for me. It's how do I help people pray a Lord's Prayer in the context, say, of the Liturgy of the Hours, which is different than the Lord's Prayer at Mass. Um, so it's the second big question is, how is it going to be used ritually? And then the third question is, how are you going to craft the music for it? Uh, paying attention to the first two, but also um, knowing that there are some standards out there <laughs> Uh, and that you try to, to salute them at least. I also wanted to ask you, is there, you know, you, I mean, first of all, I would completely argue or counter the idea that you're a craftsperson and not an artist because it's, you know, the idea of art, you know, there's the art that's very, you know, transcendent and distant, but the art that we can put our hands on and have among us every day, and there's, yeah. I mean, it's, and I don't know if you have, I know I have written things that have been crafted just fine, and I look, and I'm like, eh, no art in that at all. That's boring, <laughs> yes. and it can yes. be very well crafted. But yeah. if there's not, you know, art and that, love in it, yeah. nobody will want to sing it. And yeah. people do want to sing your music, yeah. so it's yeah. Oh. So, um, so it's kind of along those lines a little bit. Do you? Um, I mean, you're like probably one of the humblest composers I've ever met. Um, but is there any anything that you've written, you know, that you yourself feel particularly tenderly for, oh. or oh, you know, sure. what's yeah, yeah. Well, the, the, that Salve Regina. There's another choral piece uh, of the Prayer of Cardinal Newman. Mm -hmm. So, so those choral things are close to my heart, but they're in a different direction. Probably, the piece that I'm happiest with, um, in terms of the interaction of a, a chamber orchestra, uh, a congregation, soloists, and a choir. Uh, is a setting of Psalm 139, You Have Searched Me. And the, it took me 10 years to write. Wow. Uh, I, I lo absolutely love the psalm. But I wanted to try a new way of engaging the congregation, because normally in responsorial psalms, you give them a little snippet, and they repeat that snippet after every verse. 
So it never really allows them to go in the progress of thought that the psalm is, is, is having. But anyway, in this one, I translated the Hebrew in such a way that you'd have a soloist or a choir sing four lines, and then the congregation would repeat the first line and the fourth line. So for example, you have searched me and you know me when I sit and when I stand, rising, resting, waking, sleeping, all my life is in your hand. You have searched me and you know me, all my life is in your hand, right? Oh, wow. Yeah, so once that poetic structure develops, it's a long time to do the translation according to that poetic structure and then find the music that's gonna work with it. And in this case, it's 5-8. Um, so mostly 5-8 with a measure of 6-8 in there every once in a while. And it's really not hard. It's easily singable. If you don't tell the congregation that this is hard music, they just go with it. You have searched me and you know me when I sit and when I stand, rising, resting, waking, sleeping, all my life is in your hand. You have searched me and you know me, all my life is in your hand. So anyway, that, that piece is, is very close to my heart. Well, I have to say, and this might be well in that realm of stuff you want to suppress, I yeah. did kind of get on the internet and I found there's somewhere in collector's things, you, there's a Mike Jonkas uh, singing your light. Singing in the light. Singing yeah. in the light. Was that, was that your first studio project? Absolutely. First studio project, I was 18. And I now affectionately, fortunately you can't buy it. I mean, it, you just can't. Uh, World Library it, it had put it out. Um, and uh, I refer to it as the mamas and the papas go to church because <laughs> it's just not, it's, it's completely of that era. It sounds like folk rock and, um, and all of the texts are kind of vague paeans to brotherhood and friendship and love, 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 love. Uh, so I'm happy that I did it. It was good to have the experience. But I'm also very happy that no one could buy it. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to hear it. But um, I grew up with all that same music, by the way. You know, the yeah, Mamas and Papas and uh, Peter Paul Mary, Simon and Garfunkel. Yep. Um, but what? How did? Can I ask? How did you make that happen? The you know, how did you? You know, as an 18-year-old, yeah. getting into a studio to record a full-length sure, album. Sure. Um, uh, I'll answer that two ways. Uh, first, there was a priest who uh, was a, a priest of my home archdiocese, St. Paul, Minneapolis, and he had been hired by World Library to write a lot of the catechetical material that was appearing in their hymnals. And he had heard that I was writing for my seminary, right, and uh, listened to some of the music and thought, oh, this is new. Um, and convinced World Library to fund this project. Now, admittedly, it's, this is, I think, 1969, when, um, and things were much cheaper. 
but that whole recording project cost $400. Wow. We, we basically went up to a studio, you know, on the fourth floor of a building, and had a single engineer, played all of our instruments, you know, basically took one take, and that was that. So um, I learned 10 years later, when I returned to recording, um, to trust uh, the, the, the people who have the training. Uh, so I, I don't conduct my own stuff. I, I'm not an engineer of my own stuff. Uh, you trust the people, the experts that do that. And I learned that out of the, the singing and the light experience. Yeah, I would think so. I mean, did they, were, was it really mostly just one take or did you, you mostly. know, get to cut in things no. and stuff uh, like this that? Was the, this was the days that. when it was all uh, tape. Yeah. So four-inch tape, you make a mistake and then you, you pull the tape over magnetic heads and you slice it in one place and, you know, try to bring them all back together again. So um, the only uh, kind of snazzy thing I did on that one was uh, sang harmony to myself. So we did three takes of one piece so I could add voices to it. Uh, but other than that, it was pretty much just one take. Was it all just you or did you have friends oh, singing no, no. with you? I mean, My sister sang with me. Uh, I had a really good friend, flautist, and another friend that was bass player. Uh, another friend that was guitar and percussion. In fact, my English professor in high school seminary, I give her credit on the album title for hand claps. She does <laughs> hand claps at one, one of the points during this. So. That sounds like a lot of fun. It was. It was. Yeah. I actually had, I had a similar experience when, you know, it was, I was about to say, it was right about that when I was 19 and a friend and I were composing together and we, ha and we got together a group of our friends and we bought studio time and, and yeah, just the experience of being in there and seeing, you know, and listening. I think we conducted our own music, but the engineer, yes, you know, did all of the mixing and letting, you know, him work his magic and yep. kind of. Yeah. It's really fascinating, and it it's is. so different now. I mean, it's right. GarageBand and exactly. you know, something you bought on Amazon, and you can do this. Yeah. It's just yeah. you just so. have your little computer in front of you and move levers. And you got at this a little bit, um, you know, talking about you know what you tell your students and stuff. But if, and I'm sure this probably happens not infrequently, if a you know a new or younger composer or aspiring composer were to come up to you and say you know and ask, what's the most important piece of advice that you could give me? Actually, before you answer that, if I can share, this is a, a story from, you know, when I was 19 yeah. and I went up to Marty Hagen and asked that question. Excellent. Yes. Um, and it was really, it was kind of funny because of course I'm expecting something, you know, deep and spiritual and what he said at the time, I didn't really care for it. And in years of reflection, I'm like, this was the deepest, most spiritual thing he could have said. He said, most important thing, two things, write every day and throw out 90% of what you write. <laughs> I was like, what? I, that, I, I, that it stunned money. me. Yeah, absolutely. But that has been probably the single most valuable piece of compositional advice I've ever gotten in my life, yeah. even though it wasn't what I expected. Yeah. So. Well, let me do two things. Okay. Let me tell you my story of being a 19-year-old and <laughs> bringing some of my compositions to a, a composer I respected. Lucien Dess, who has now gone home to Jesus, but for many years would come to the United States and, and uh, do workshops. And I had read his uh, masterpiece, Spirit and Song in the New Liturgy, 
where as a, a, a man who'd actually constructed this material, he was on the, the committees after Vatican II to, to help create the liturgical books. What a resource. And I knew his music, right? Because it had been quite popular in that period. So as a 19-year-old, I go with a manuscript in hand and the text, Amen, Alleluia, Amen, it shall be so. And I said, Father, you're the one that inspired me in this because you said what amen means is so many things. And I'd like you to look at this. And he generously took it, looked at it for at least 10 seconds, and then casually put it aside and said, well, have you heard perhaps uh, the Alleluia and Amen that I have written? And I said, you know, Father, yes, I, I, I've heard it. I, I think it's lovely. Alleluia, Alleluia. And he said, do you know what the part is? And I said, that's the blues. <laughs> 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 so I was able to think to myself, Lucien Des, great composer, doesn't have a clue what the blues are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so, That's great. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, and his gesture was like Marty's gesture. Um, you could be a good composer someday and keep writing. Um, okay. his, it, it, the, the toss away 90% of what you write I completely agree with. It's probably the reason why I'm not all that prolific, and that's okay. I'm trying to think what a young composer comes to me and asks. I would probably say um, pray, uh, and, and, and pray and, and Bible. Those two would be the foundation for me. But that's the priest part in me too, so. I'd say it's pretty important. You're gonna be a church yeah. musician, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you very, oh, very much. This pleasure. has just been wonderful. It's just, it's a pleasure to talk to you and it's wonderful having you here. And just, again, thank you for being an artist craftsperson <laughs> and just giving, giving us so much to sing and beautiful melodies and beautiful words and melodies that are able to shift with the words and just express so much, so. Thank you, thank you. Um, if this doesn't sound too sappy, just pray for me and pray uh, that whatever inspiration I've had in the past will continue. Beyond my grasp so high.
information, including details about the music you heard on today's podcast, please visit our website at singamen.giamusic.com. Sing Amen is produced and supported by GIA Publications.